What if passports were stamped with experiences instead of places? With Luxury Gold, each journey brings you unforgettable passport moments. In Japan, join a private sushi making class with a master chef and witness the cherry blossoms alongside a tree doctor. Experiences like these are the golden threads that make up your Luxury Gold journey. To learn more, contact your travel advisor or visit luxurygold.com forward slash Japan. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is going to be perhaps one of the most unique interviews I've ever done on the show. I brought on Billy Horde and her brother, Paul Horde. And we talked about this, 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 uh, not not topic. What's what I'm looking for here? This uh, term. That's the that's the word. This term that that they coined called "eu contamination." Eu contamination, and they are very into this idea of disgust as humans. We're gonna get into it in the episode. I promise. It sounds 
weird now, but it will make sense later. And how our evangelical culture gives us this category of disgust that really keeps us repulsed by things that aren't inside the circles of evangelicalism. That's my best way of describing it. But I'm telling you, this is a very fascinating interview. I do want to give a a trigger warning. We do talk about sexual abuse and sexual violence at at some point. Um, And so just be aware of that. This is definitely a, a heavier conversation, but really thought-provoking and eye-opening for me. It it, it has given me another term to add to my vocabulary of trying to understand uh, so much of the violence that we see towards uh, people in the queer community and and others. Um, And so I, I I found this very, very helpful, and I hope that you do too. As always, I want to say a sincere thank you for uh, following the podcast and listening to us. If you can do us a favor and give us a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify or a like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube, that would just be so helpful. It helps other people know that the porch light is on for the new evangelicals, that people can find better paths forward beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. And of course, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people. If you want to help be a part of that work, you can donate at the link in our bio or link in our show notes or link in the YouTube description, wherever you want to donate, it goes to the same place. And all donations in the US are tax deductible. Your donation holds space for so many people. A sincere thank you. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Billy and Paul Horde. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. Um, Billy and Paul Horde, good to have both of you here. I, I'm, I'm going to put my cards out on the table. This might be the most unique conversation I ever have on a topic that I know the least about because I never heard of the term until I spoke to you, Billy. Um, we spoke uh, on social media and you you kind of pitched this to me like, hey, let's talk about this. I'm like, well, why don't we meet and talk about it first? And then I was like, wow, this is really like, interesting and we should dig into that and then you brought your brother on paul who's joining us who's also been part of this work so we're gonna unpack a lot of this stuff today so audience just buckle up we're we're, we're, we're gonna walk down some unique roads and i think that's important you know we, we try and give people um different perspectives as much as possible different ways of thinking about kind of the world that i'm assuming a lot of us are walking out of this fundamentalist basement of evangelicalism. Like, what do we do now uh, for those of us who want to stay somewhere in the Christian tradition? But before I do that, so Paul and Billy, you are both siblings. Um, Why don't you introduce yourself? Billy, why don't you go first? Uh, Some of the questions I want to know, your backstory, and how did you get into this this work of what we're calling you contamination, which I'm so fascinated to learn about? (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So um, my name is, is Billy Horde. I'm a, I'm a trans woman, which is going to be relevant a bunch throughout as we talk about where we get got to this idea. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not surprised that you contamination is a new concept. We invented the term, um, but I think two papers back. So um, hence the thing. And basically, uh, think of it as the area of disgust and the role as a reaction to it. So it's a suggestion we have to make. Uh, after a bunch of observations we made about disgust and how disgust is influencing uh, the church, at least the church in the West uh, today. Um, so yeah, we uh, we both grew up pretty solidly evangelical, kind of middle of the road evangelical. Um, and uh, then um, 
uh, you know, it's, it feels like a very, very common story in this, in this context, in this audience, right? Like, uh, you know, kind of starting in college, there were some like good beginnings of what, what ends up getting called deconstruction a lot. Um, and that kind of, for me, you know, sort of, it matured over time. Um, I went through, you know, went from Bible college graduate. Um, I ended up in a vineyard church up in Maryland, uh, for a while and then left that when I became affirming, well, I was kicked out. Um, and, uh, so the story up, goes, uh, right. So the story, again, this is not an uncommon story, right? <laughs> I was, uh, for the record at that point, I was still identifying as like a, a cis straight guy. Um, and then we started at an Anabaptist church, which is where we still make our church home. Um, and, uh, we're very happy there. Uh, but it's, it's, that has given us a lot of like invited us to look back on evangelicalism and ask a lot about the dynamics of what causes people to get kicked out, what get, what leads to inclusion, how evangelicals like to draw the boundaries um, and these kind of interesting, these boundary marking mechanisms. Um, I'll let Paul tell his story because uh, I think they really need to come together to talk about how this idea works. Great. Yeah. And so I'm four years younger than Billy. So I grew up um, as the following just kind of in Billy's footsteps in a lot of ways. And which is a big part of it's kind of what we write in the, in the recent paper, in the newer paper about where we kind of take uh, her story of coming out to me and sort of unpack that through this lens that we've been talking about. Uh, but I went then the path of counseling. So I got a master's in counseling. I'm a licensed mental health counselor. Then I went on and got a PhD. Um, and so I'm now a professor of counselor education at the Seattle school. Um, so my world into this has been much more through sort of the academic lens of sort of getting real fascinated with the psychology of disgust and how that plays out. And then the interaction between um, essentially kind of purity culture and disgust and kind of looking at that through kind of a therapeutic lens of like, oh, what's the impact of this on people's mental health and where people go with that? And then it was it was Sammy's wedding, wasn't it, Billy? It was, it, was. Uh, it was our younger brother's wedding a couple of years ago where we were sitting around. It was kind of a Christmas time and we were just having these discussions about disgust and purity and some of the different kind of similar veins that we've been reading in um, and some of these ideas sort of sort of yeah being born right right then but yeah my world um, my trajectory of my own faith has probably been pretty similar to Billy's in terms of college and beyond um, as far as like starting in the church and then um, I feel like you know the story I'd say I'd followed Jesus out of the church um, of at least the evangelical church in a lot of yeah. ways. And so this pursuit of the way, the truth and the life has sort of been this kind of central thing for me that continues pushing me toward forward in terms of both my work as a therapist, but then also in the Academy. Um, okay. That's helpful. By the way, it is funny because in this world, you're right. These stories are so common. I also play drums like in a cover band on the weekends and no one outside of these bubbles, like, understands any of this right i mean i've i've had bandmates who are like what is purity culture i'm like oh must be so nice not to know what purity (laughs) culture is right or the term deconstruction they're like deacon what what are you talking about so it is interesting how it's like such a common story in inside of the space but in so many other ways like it's like wait what happened to you um i just thought that's an interesting little tidbit all right so are you are you both in academic, uh, like academia, Billy, are, is that what you do for a living? Are, are you in, in the college world or somewhere else? I'm, uh, I'm actually in the uh, high school. I'm a high school teacher. I teach world history is my, uh, is my day job. I have, uh, been, I have taught philosophy at uh, community college level. 
Okay. I went and got a master's after my undergraduate in Bible. So Gotcha. And and is it safe to say then that you both are somewhere in the Christian tradition somewhere? I mean, like maybe loosely, but you're somewhere in the house. Maybe it's a closet. Oh, yeah. Who knows? But you're there. All yeah. right. Fair um, enough. Uh, okay. So let's get into this, this, this term that you both coined and, and kind of unpack it. So you contamination, how disgust is influencing the church is kind of like the tagline that I heard in some of this. And it's interesting that you use the word disgust. That's a very... At least for me, it, it definitely invokes like a strong feeling, right? Of just gross and just re, uh, being repulsed by something. But I have to know wh- why the focus on this, and then how did you get to coining this term? Like, what's the backstory there? Paul, this one's all you, buddy. All right, here we go. <laughs> so I'm got, ready, Paul. <laughs> here we go. All right, hope you're taking notes. Here comes the lecture. No, um, copiously. <laughs> no, so um, uh, a lot of us. It, it, it gets quite fascinating, but disgust is, if you remember um, the Inside Out movie, disgust was one of those little little emotions inside that's sort of one of the least talked about. You know, we often talk about fear, we talk about anger, or we talk about love or joy, but we don't talk about disgust. Um, but it's actually insanely formational when it comes to the self and the concept of the self. So disgust is a boundary enforcing mechanism that helps you delineate what's me and what's not me. Um, and it gets real fascinating. I hope I'm not going to get too gross here, but, uh, when we start looking at like the things that make us disgusted, uh, right? Like there's saliva in our mouths right now. We're swallowing it. I'm drinking things, but if I were to spit it out of my mouth, suddenly it's disgusting. That's right. Yes. I agree. You can spit in a cup and you, most people won't drink it again. No, ew. Even (laughs) though I'm disgusted. I know. (laughs) But currently like you're swallowing saliva. It's like, as soon as something inside you, that's part of you leaves, it's no longer a part of me. Now it's disgust inducing. Yeah, I track that. Um, And so disgust is all about maintaining what is me and what's not me. And that works on an individual, but then also on a social and a group level that we are disgusted by those things that remind us of something outside. Now, in theory, you know, it's, 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 it's thought to have evolved to help humans kind of delineate um, between things that are dangerous to us, but you can't see, right. In In a world prior to the understanding of bacteria and germs, you had this magical understanding of like, what made you sick? And there are things out there that you couldn't couldn't see. And so disgust is sort of this emotion that comes up that helps us know what's safe and what isn't for things that we can't otherwise visualize or make sense of. Whereas fear helps keep you safe from things that you can make sense of. Mm. Like a bear is scary. I can see a bear. I can see the danger. Germs, on the other hand, I don't know what I eat is going to make me ill if I live in a world without, you know, without bacteria, where I don't understand bacteria and germs. Right. So disgust comes at this. And so in that sense, it's always had this kind of magical supernatural connection because it's connected to the things beyond your senses, uh, the things you can't quite get your head around. And, you know, because some things, you know, like, like the saliva, some, nothing you know, on a logical level, nothing changes about the saliva from your mouth to the cup, but on an internal reaction, like, Oh, something magical changed. Oh no, this is terrible. I mean, yes, it does kind of supersede the logical notion of, I know this is fine, um, however, I, I could never do it. Like something deep inside me is like, no, never drink yes. your own spit back in a cup. What are you thinking? And if someone did, I would be like, I'd be grossed out. If it was a buddy. I'd be like, dude, that is disgusting. I would just tell him that straight up. Even though, like you said, yeah. logically I do it every day, multiple times a day in my mouth. Right. Well, and, and so, and what you just described there, I think is the significance of it. We often mistake fear or disgust for fear. Mm. And fear, you can, like, you know, um, classic CBT therapy, like, you help people change the way they think about something, and that changes your reaction to it. Disgust, 
there's something more visceral, more like kind of deeper happening. That's like, you can tell me, it, <laughs> I don't care how pure, like a, you know, like a plastic fake dog poop is. I'm not going to lick it. Right. It may be as clean as possible, but I'm not going to lick it. Right. right. Or I'm not going to drink the saliva again. Right. There's just something that goes far beyond our logical, you know, rational self. Right. Um, and so this is kind of what, what got me really interested in disgust because it starts opening up kind of our way of thinking, oh, there's something beyond what I can think happening here. There's something beyond my reason, my rationality. And I've always, you know, as a therapist, I've always had kind of a little bit more of a psychoanalytic bent anyway. And so the significance of unconscious processes yeah. have always been quite important to me. And this became a way where I was like, oh, this is this is kind of where, where some of that's playing out because we think we you know, racism exists a lot of times. People say, or sexism and all these other sort of evils exist because we see something terrible. And so we're going to logically educate people as to why you shouldn't be racist. Um, and people are still racist. There's something beyond what we think happening there. Mm. And so as Billy and I were getting into this, it became a way of kind of looking at the church in terms of like, there's some significant boundary mechanisms happening here. Um, and I think this has much more to do with disgust than it does fear. And then, of course, the, na- the, the, the direct connection between uh, purity culture and disgust makes it pretty obvious. Is, um, and a lot of that stuff that's been kind of come out recently of the way that purity culture impacts pe- people. But I think I'm going on a tangent here. But, okay. <laughs> but it, was, uh, it was Richard Beck's book, um, Unclean. Unclean, Meditations on Purity, where he draws this distinction, where he, he, he talks about how anytime we talk about purity, we're actually also talking about disgust. Anytime something is pure, something else is disgusting because you can't have a pure thing unless there are contaminants that would threaten to make it impure. Okay. For, for once, can we pause for one minute here? Can, can, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is yeah. really great, honestly, because it's something I would have never put together, something that I think is important for us to have um, language for, right? Because you're right. There are times where I'm like, I don't know if that response I'm seeing or I'm even feeling is fear necessarily, but there's something else that still makes you want to say, no, like I, I I don't want to do that. Or, or, or I find this like a turn off of some sort. Can we just explore that purity culture point really briefly to try and give people something to ground this in? Because a lot of us have, you know, grown up in purity culture. We've been a part of it. So, so how do you, how do you, how does disgust play into the purity culture aspect? I mean, personally, as as uh, you know, um, a, a cis male, my biggest fear was just like you know, if I had sex, I'm giving away a part of myself. I wasn't so much the gross part about it, or or it being gross to me. It was you know, if I have sex before I'm married, I give away too much of myself, or I get someone pregnant, or whatever. It, it was a, it was that kind of fear. But help me understand the link in your minds in perspective from disgust to purity culture. So. Yeah, jump on this go ahead, Bill. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. This one, I think about this one a lot. So I think um, we see disgust operating a whole lot in like late 90s, early 2000, or I think most of the 90s and early 2000s purity culture, especially as it is applied to Christian women, hmm. um, right? Like most of the metaphors that are so now infamously cited are actually sort of disgust at the core, right? Like they're you know, at the risk of sending people down a really unpleasant memory hole. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the youth group exercise of like chewing gum a bunch of times. And then like, you are these used up piece of chewing gum and mm, I mean, it's an evocation yeah. of our disgust reaction to suggest that somebody would want to chew a piece of gum that another person has chewed specifically because of this, this, um, you know, the saliva mechanism that Paul was talking about earlier. Right. Um, so a lot of disgust language and disgust well, in our papers, we, we tend to refer to it as disgust logic. Although like Paul said, it's really much more sort of below 
the rational level that this thing operates. But this kind of logic of disgust, met metaphors of disgust, were used a lot in purity culture. Um, and what I think that does uh, is that it, it, it actually bypasses those logical uh, gatekeeping mechanisms we have, and it just makes us feel bad. And in fact, you know, it makes us feel um, dirty. Right? It makes us feel corrupted to have engaged in these behaviors um, or, you know, that we will be corrupted or we will be made dirty if we engage in these behaviors. And to become a disgusting thing is like phenomenally terrifying, right? It means that you are yourself a, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, right? But if you are disgusting, then you are a con contaminant, right? Like you will contaminate others, which means that you come to a place where you're going to believe, you're going to convince yourself that you belong outside of even what you might want to protect. Um, and that can be horrendously damaging. Right? This is people putting themselves outside the church community right? and, and understanding that they ought to be because they have become disgusting. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Go ahead, Paul. No, I was going to say, I mean, in therapy, this comes out a lot in various forms of church trauma, but then also, the, I mean, the big word we use for it would be shame and the, the incredible amounts of shame that people carry around as once you become a source of disgust, once you are disgusting, there's no undoing that. You're, you're now used, you know, you can't put the chewing gum back to its nice position. And that's the whole, that's that logic of disgust is that when that's being invoked, it's this unilateral, it's this kind of yeah unidirectional um, source. And it's a very um, power differential between the fragile, the pure and the powerful disgust is um, insane. Right. It's, you know, it takes one drop of something gross in your drinking water and you're not going to drink it. Well, I'm thinking about that analogy of sin, right? If mm -hmm. I put a little bit of dog poop in the brownie batter, who would eat it? Ew, that's disgusting. I would never do that. Right. Is that kind of the, the what you uh, both call the logic or the disgust logic or logic of disgust? Is that what you're talking about there? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we actually use that. <laughs> our first article where we, we, um, we, we started with that story. Yeah of the, the dog poop and the brownies. We both heard um, it growing up. Oh, to was, me too. I mean, I, and I, I didn't want to be corrupted or impure somehow. Um, so I, I have to assume, and maybe I'm assuming incorrectly, has there been for both of you like personal, um, you know, ha has disgust been aimed at both of you personally that, that kind of made you think about it this way? Like usually when people, when people are passionate about something, there's some kind of like personal connection to this. So is there for, for both of you? Yeah, I mean, I'll let, I'll let Paul tell his story, but um, I mean, for me, a lot, right? Like I, I mentioned early on that we got kicked out of the vineyard over my, uh, not the vineyard movement as a whole, that somebody's going to come after me if I say that, uh, but our church, we were kicked out of our church um, because I was publicly advocating LGBTQ acceptance. And a lot of the language was this disgust, especially a spiritualized disgust-based language. In fact, the day that I was you know, told that we could still attend, but not really participate on oh, yeah. a functional level. That's right? how like they that, get that kind you. of soft boot, right? It's not like, you no, no, you out. left. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, that it's like, no, I, I'm just, at this point, I'm owning me. it. Like, I, I got totally kicked out. That. I'm not yeah, doing it. Exactly. Um, yeah, I get that. But like at, on the day that happened, I was told by the pastor that it was because he had discerned that my theology of accepting queer people um, was preventing a move of the Holy Spirit at the church. Right, that I was, I was it making the like the spirit of our church impure, God. right? Um, which is to power, locate, Billy. a lot of power. Right? You had. <laughs> I know, I know. This has been my response ever since. Right, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can stop the Holy Spirit. This <laughs> <Yeah>. is like, trying <laughs> to put on that. Yeah. My head. Right, seriously. <laughs> um, so I kind of knew ahead of time. Like I, I think I said earlier, like I was still, I still thought of myself actually at that point as a straight cis guy, um, and I didn't. 
I mean, honestly, it was, it was in accepting first accepting that queerness is not a contaminant, but a, a you contaminant. It does infect us, but infects us for good. It is a holy thing. Um, that was what made it possible for me to begin to explore the possibility of my queerness, to be able to like begin to realize who I am, which I will say has been an amazingly healing journey. Um, but it was, I had, I had to come to grips with not only was I defending this thing, but this thing that had been labeled disgusting and contaminating was in fact something that, it, that God has made, you know, holy and beautiful and part of creation. And that, that in getting rid of me, they were actually getting rid of something that is helpful and beautiful to the church. Um, but that's been like, that's a process. It's been a huge and long and slow healing journey. Um, well, me. I can only imagine because, you know, I mean, I grew up in evangelical spaces and um, I, you, you're really indoctrinated. I mean, that, that's kind of what it is. I, I hate to use such strong language. I think we have to call a spade a spade sometimes. And, and when that is, when that is given to you at a very young age and Paul, if I misstate, uh, misspeak here, just correct me because you're the pro, not me, but I, it feels like to me, those roots are deeper than than the average person who might get saved at age eighteen in this movement. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, and I I have even noticed even on an uh, on an experience experiential level that there are people who I meet who seem to be like pretty you know like okay, and they're like, yeah, well, I got saved when I was nineteen, and then eventually I thought maybe it wasn't for me, so I walked away. That that's very different than yeah, since I was four years old, I was told I was going to burn in hell forever, and I can't I can't get this this idea of me burning in hell out of my head. And it's causing me a lot of pain, right? So was that kind of your situation, Billy, as you um, maybe for the first time were able to ask yourself honest questions? Was there like that that disgust, um, you know, a barrier almost triggered, you know, as like, as like a defense mechanism? Like, no, I can't think that because that is repulsive. It's an abomination, whatever. Yeah, I, I think it's similar. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, my experience is closely related to that, like, like that closely describes it. Mm. Um, uh, I think the phrase I've used in the past and I, I like is that when I was growing up, you know, this is the nineties mostly, um, queerness as I experienced it had an impossible resemblance to my own experience. Like the queerness that I was shown and told about by the church on the one hand, right. It did describe something that I was absolutely experiencing. On the other hand, it was so alien and foreign and evil and like gross that like, that just couldn't be me. I, I want to say like, maybe, you know, plot it to our parents, credit to our parents that like, I, it wasn't open to me to believe that I could be this, this horrible thing that was being, um, being shown to me. Um, and in, the, I mean, so I think that probably protected me in some psychological ways that Paul could get into if he wanted to, <laughs> if he wanted to do the bad, you know, the ethically inappropriate thing and psychoanalyze his, his older sister. Um, great idea. Right, I've never, <laughs> done that. never analyzed it. That's good. <laughs> um, right. But it meant that as I got older and I began to learn that like queerness is not that thing, even after I had been, again, I'd been affirming, um, you know, I'd written like long blog posts on justifying, you know, trans identities and LGBTQ plus sexuality. Uh, from a Christian event, even evangelical perspective. Um, but even after I'd done that for a long time, I still had this sub, you know, conscious like block in any ability to see myself as this, this thing. And I think a lot of that's because it had been tagged with this, this disgust aura. I could, I couldn't get at it. It wasn't accessible to me because there would have to have been at one, like back in my childhood, there had to be so much shame in identifying myself with this thing that even when I could divorce that for everybody else, I had to face the possible opening myself to a lot of shame to be able to see it in myself. And that wasn't a place that was in any way psychologically easy for me to go. That took, you know, it took time. 
Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Well, I was gonna say, Billy, I remember um, I forget, it was probably a decade ago. So we were on the on your back porch talking, and you mentioned how there, there was a moment when you realized that you weren't grossed out uh, by the queer community anymore. That there was just, and, and, and I remember you saying that, and that was a huge moment for me because I realized, oh, there's this isn't just you know in my mind. I was like, oh, I have my my theological reasons for believing certain things, but I realized, no, I actually have a like. There is an emotional reaction that I've I've developed of why that entire community needs you know was was. I was trained to keep them at bay and to think of them as, as other, as different. Um, yeah, no, I remember that was huge. Actually, it's funny. Like that one's my, uh, if you'll let me go, go all charismatic for half a second. Cause you know, vineyard you, you have half a I second. Like, you can take the girl out of the vineyard, but you can't take the vineyard out of the girl. Um, <laughs> like I genuinely still hold that that was like my miracle, right? Like I had started um, as the uh, GSA, the gender sexuality Alliance advisor at the high school where I taught. Um, and I knew doing that, I did it because there was no other teacher that seemed like ready to do that at the time and it needed to happen. But I knew I had this problem that there were certain aspects of queer sexuality that I, I, I didn't believe were wrong, but were still sort of viscerally, I had a disgust reaction to like, it's, it squicked me up. And, um, I remember praying about it and I was in, there was this moment where I was in like pretty deep prayer in, in saying, Hey God, I, I, I think this is right. I, you know, we've, we've worked through this. I've worked through the, all the exegesis of it. I've done the clobber passages. I've done all this. And, yeah. and these are really great kids. And I, and I see how much it helps them to be supported. Yeah. But like, is this like my conscience that's still saying no? And, um, you know, sometimes we have the, that experience of like feeling like God is talking to us. And sure. I very much had one of those experiences just saying, no, this is where you're supposed to be. And in that exact same moment, it just evaporated. Like since then, that that experience of squickedness just hasn't existed around that topic. Um, and I have no other explanation for why. I mean, there's, I'm sure Paul could like come up with some plausible, like there was a psychological breakthrough that happened just as you were like coming to peace with something. But for me, it very much felt like a sort of supernatural confirmation that was just like, no, this is right. And also I'm going to take away this this damage that was done to you around that community. Um, Paul, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what I said earlier about this idea of of when you're indoctrinated in these things as a kid versus like later on as an adult. You know, it, it, is there is it harder to let go of those whatever it is, whatever this disgust or even fear based reaction is? Is it hard to let to let go of those things as you get older when when it's ingrained in you at a very young age, or is is the data suggests that really at at, at any stage when this happens, it could be difficult? Well, I, yes, <laughs> it, says it can be difficult at any stage. I think, you know, I, I think we look at it as like, oh, when did you hear this message? And like, we actually, we, we often distill it down to like information packets of like, when did somebody say this to you? But what impacts us a lot more is what is, are the, is the relationships we've been in and the communities we've been in. And so it's, it's actually the practices of those communities and the way that they, they enforce their boundaries. You know, it's not so much that we remember like what the pastor said on that one sermon that one time. Yes, that's right. But we remember the way everybody acted when that guy walked into church or when that woman walked in or when, you know, that aunt's, you know, daughter decided to do X, Y, or Z, you know, those are the things that stay with us. And those are the things that can become more ingrained because these practices and these relational spaces. And so that's where, yeah, it, I mean, at a young age, you're forming your sense of self, you're forming your sense of connection. Um, so your whole, I, your, your whole way of being able to conceptualize who am I and what does it mean to be a person is as that's being formed, you're learning, you're looking around at the community around you and that's giving you that answer. Um, so when that happens, it's yeah, helpful. It gets very deep. I wanted to ask, you know, both of your thoughts as this, this new language that I'm kind of with you in the moment processing of disgust, right? Yeah. Um, 
and I, I, I want to be, you know, appropriate and delicate, but also just, you know, since we're using this strong language, yeah. In your estimation, how much of the response to this, um, you know, anti queerness kind of movement? I'm thinking about about like Matt Walsh, right? The the whole drag queen show stuff, and Ali Stuckey saying we need legislation that bans parents from, from bringing their kids to a drag show. How much of that do you think is more discussed? Than fear based because my only paradigm has always been fear, right? Well, Matt right. just doesn't understand. He doesn't understand. Ali doesn't understand. But as you're talking, I'm like, you know, I think disgust is a much more accurate framework because Matt made a document, a documentary term used loosely, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to discredit the whole movement. Obviously, he has read stuff on. It. I think he comprehends to some degree the the logic of, of of how this ideology and perspective can work, right? But he's still like almost acts repulsed by it is 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 that what you see as well oh yeah yeah uh, do you want to talk about this paul i mean i can talk about it from the like in my experience as somebody who who is on the like kind of receiving end of this but uh I yeah mean, go, okay. for it, so, go for it so um i'll let i'll let paul talk about the kind of sociological psychological dynamics uh, right. involved. but i can just say that like you know as speaking as a trans person as a queer person it it is this it like it feels like being treated as a disgusting thing to hear Matt Walsh talk about us, to read what, you know, the libs of TikTok type people oh gosh, yeah. want to say about us. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think actually we see it a lot. I may use a kind of a simple example, a straightforward example. We see it a lot in these, we, you'll see the trans community particularly, but you know, supporters as well, try to push back, you know, to, you know, arguments about like, why are you talking about gender ideology in school with everything that happened in Florida, they, you know, the, the term they use. Yeah. And, um, and we kind of push back and we say, hey, well, look, if, if a straight teacher is talking about their spouse, nobody says that's forcing gender ideology onto it, but it's not logically different than if a gay teacher is talking about, you know, his husband. Right. Um, and yet it hits differently. And I think the reason it hits differently is because the assumption is, I think uh, it's Julia Serrano, uh, who's a, a trans theorist, and I like her um, a lot, <laughs> <laughs> but she talks about stigma. Mm. Uh, and she actually also roots this concept of stigma in disgust rather than in fear. Um, that stigma um, means that you don't have to treat equal things equally because if one is disgusting, it it doesn't merit equal treatment, mm. right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, 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 a gay couple is equal to a straight couple in terms of like all you know legal stuff. There's no reason to think that a gay couple is more like that their that their sexuality somehow transmits more easily than straight sexuality does, you know, and yet it's pervasive. Like the idea, the assumption that does is pervasive, even often with people who are and want to be kind of affirming who are, who support the LGBT community will do this like, well, I guess maybe that's not, you know, not, not great to be taught. You know, maybe that's a little bit early. You know, I always worry about though. That's a little bit early to introduce, you know, kids to like gay couples. He's like, well, you're, you're a straight couple. You introduced your kids to, the, to you the moment they began to understand that, that, that mom and dad were attracted to one another. Right. Like, right. Um, but I think the, the, I think it's honestly discussed that makes sense of the fact that these, there's not an equal treatment of these two things because it's not logical. It's not rational, but it does have a kind of, it taps into a thing that we experience as normal uh, and as appropriate. And so it, it leads yes. us to kind of, giving it more credence than it really merits, but we tend to give it this credence. Um, and yeah, I, the, I think on some level, the people like Matt Walsh know they're doing this. Um, and I don't yeah. want to get too cynical, but like the fact of the matter is that 
if you can persuade people to find something disgusting, you don't have to convince them that it's wrong. They'll right. just avoid it. Right. Right. So it short circuits having to make a very difficult argument. I mean, you know, the whole what is a woman doc- documentary and scare quotes here on my end for sure. Right. The whole thing doesn't seriously engage with people who have thought carefully, logically, rationally about the complexities of gender and gender identity and sex and intersex people and like all of this, all of that complexity because it doesn't need to. It, it can make by treating thing, people as ridiculous and as disgusting and evoking languages of disgust and images that he knows he can just count on to evoke disgust in his viewers, the argument gets made anyway. Um, on a much more powerful level. Yeah. Right. Cause yes. if, if you convince somebody, you can be convinced otherwise, right? If it's, if, if it's a rational thing, you can, you know, new arguments can push you in another direction, which makes it a little bit more fragile. Whereas if it's disgust and you're, you're missing the, you're skipping the whole, someone can reason me out of this. Well, also, okay. Let me ask you this, Paul, uh, in, in that you can, you can kind of launch into like your thoughts about this, but I'm also wondering if there's maybe a connection. I'm, I'm just speculating here, uh, between our society is big on facing fears, right? Face your fears, like move past your fears. So scary things. I think there's a, almost a, a subconscious idea of like, well, why is, you know, to really approach it more, you know, rationally, well, why is it scaring me? How do I face it? But disgust, I think is like a universal, like, yeah, no, no one wants, do not face your disgust. Do not spit in the cup and drink your saliva. You're not brave. You're not smart for doing that. It's dumb. It's disgusting. Right? So I think even Mm -hmm. on that level, disgust kind of short circuits, even that uh, sense of bravery or having the, the the virtue of courage because you face your fear and you you overcame whatever that fear is right but disgust is like almost uh you know term used loosely here a universal you know idea of like yeah mark and avoid is there a connection there in your mind paul uh, i think i think there's a big one um, because again disgust is getting back to like this concept of even what is me and so doing something disgusting is, th- is a threaten is doing something that threatens the very concept of who am I, right? We often think of it, uh, you know, if, if someone makes the face of like, they're disgusted, it's the face that they're about to hurl. It's that something yes. has to leave my body. This cannot be metabolized literally into me, you know? And that's why, I mean, kids are trying to learn how to, to eat different foods is, is such a great example of this. There's they're almost arbitrarily picking what they, what is and isn't disgusting any day. Because what they're doing is making a decision about what can become me and what can't become me. And they're learning how to do that. And it's a very visceral thing. I think we like to talk about fear because it affirms, I mean, post-enlightenment, this sort of like, I am mainly just my mind. And so I'm just a rational being. Whereas because disgust doesn't use that, we don't like thinking of ourselves as being controlled by disgust. But again, if, if all we were, if all it was was fear, then self-help books could replace therapy. Right. right. Because all would be just information right. like, oh, just read the book, right. read the tweet, watch the movie. But there's something much more embodied happening with us. Mm. And and the, the, with the scary part of disgust, right, it's, it's really useful in some levels. Right. It, I mean, COVID-19, sure. it kept us safe. Like the fact that we were disgusted by things like that kept people washing hands and wearing masks and doing these things to protect them. Um, and so, you know, we want to be careful that we don't just say disgust is evil. Right. Um, but at the same time it needs to be something that I think we need to find ways to talk about and to think about. And so that we can develop the practices. And this is a little bit of where Billy and I go in our more recent article of like developing the practices to not be controlled by our disgust so that we're not using it to alienate other people, 
to protect us from other people. I kind of have this, the line of like, disgust is really helpful in helping you decide what to eat. It's terrible at deciding at helping you navigate who you should eat with. That's, that is helpful because, you know, I, 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 as, again, as you're talking, I'm just trying to put pieces together of, of trying to explain some of the stuff to people, right. Or trying to even understand, and especially around, I think, queerness and, and the queer community, because, and, uh, you know, Billy and Paul, feel free to speak into this. And again, feel free to correct me at any point when I, when I might be off, but my, my thought is that I think that, that there are people out there who see um you know some clip on twitter of a drag queen show right and they go oh that's not normal that's not that isn't what people especially men should be wearing uh therefore i'm kind of i'm i'm put off i'm disgusted by this therefore it must be harming children automatically right um, or, or the, even some people like, you know, whoever might think, well, I could, I'm not sexually attracted to someone, you know, I, as a man, I'm not attracted to another man, uh, and whoever could that, that I just can't, I can't fathom that. And I can't fathom being romantic with someone like that. Therefore it just sounds disgusting to me. Right. I mean, I'm just kind of maybe putting what the, the, the thoughts in people's heads out to the public for us to hear yeah. and to, to think about maybe. Yeah that you're right what's driving especially this particular avenue of discussion around the queer community what's driving so much of this isn't so much the fear part i mean there could be elements of course we fear what we don't know what we can't understand but on a deeper more guttural emotional visceral reaction right we have this this disgust mechanism being triggered uh that is saying well yeah i don't want to i don't want that to be me i i can't digest this idea therefore I reject it. And now that I'm a Christian, my theology, I'll just make sure it definitely supports this idea that now God, which is a whole other le- you know, level of, of, of that, like God card, right. Of uh, how, how, how are you going to argue? How are you going to argue with God? It's God. When that is then tacked onto that. And I think you just have a really potent recipe, right. For, I think what we're seeing today, the fruit of, of so much harm that's come towards the queer community, largely at the at the hands of white evangelicals and their political pundits yeah any thoughts on that how'd i do <laughs> oh my gosh so many thoughts i so many well um, um a couple just uh i really want paul to talk about i'm hoping paul will talk about um love and how love can undo disgust because I yes i think what um but i think what's really important is already to notice that like christianity itself as a i mean you know, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I believe in a risen Jesus. Um, but Christianity as a religion, as a system, is is founded around, in a lot of ways, dissolving these these disgust reactions, right? Like, so I'm agreeing with you that this. I think this is how it's working. Like, I think you're you're describing well the mechanism. But I want to call out and kind of notice that that's actually fundamentally, profoundly anti-Christian for mm. it to work this way, right? Ours is the faith where. You know, um, Peter is called to overcome his disgust reaction to incorporate the rest of the world into the church, right? right? Um, that, that, in fact, breaking our disgust reactions. A lot of what Paul and I have been writing about is this: is the are these these tools within Christian practice and Christian orthodoxy and Christian belief that should help us to undo and to counteract disgust reactions against you know fellow human beings made in the image of God. Um, it's powerful. And so like, so when Christianity functions to reinforce or to play on our disgust mechanisms towards other people, it's being used exactly contrary to the way that Jesus seems to have intended the practices, the forms that, that, that he gave us. 
Um, and I just think that needs to be to be highlighted. I also think uh, a lot of the when we were doing some of our research for this and we were reading uh, Beck's Unclean is again, it was sort of the beginning. It was when we were talking about having read this book that like all of this work ended up coming together for us. We were bringing other things in. But he talks about that one of the uh, sources of disgust is a combination of what we think of as lower into what we think of as higher. And he cites, I think, monsters and like the bringing of the animal up into humans. So like the minotaur, uh, werewolves, these sorts of things. Um, but I want to note that like the drag queen thing, I think is perfectly, I'm going to say diabolically designed to evoke a disgust reaction in people who have been conditioned with some really heinous influences, right? Because I think those that find drag queens disgusting are in a lot of ways rooting that in the bringing of femininity into masculinity, into a masculine, onto a masculine body, the imposition of femininity onto a masculine body. And in, in of course, in the case of drag queens, it's usually a playful hyperfemininity. Um, so the, the fact that that works as a disgust evoking thing, like that's rooted in misogyny. That's rooted in a belief that femininity is lower than masculinity and it works really well and that it works really well should tell us a lot. Right. So I guess those are, those are some of my preliminary thoughts as you were, as you were talking, I, I really don't want Paul to kind of move on to like, to, to come in with some of this, like what we think is really the good news of Christianity on this problem. But like, those were my thoughts. Well, those are great thoughts, uh, Billy, and very insightful. And I agree with you though. I mean, Paul, give me some damn good news here because I'm like, okay, if disgust supersedes our logic, you know, like how do I, how do I educate myself to not be disgusted? Right? Like what is the answer here? So I would love your thoughts. Well, the, yeah. <laughs> Speaking as a therapist, there's no simple solution. Anytime, you, anytime it, Paul, somebody's like, oh, just do this. I know. <laughs> I know. I can't dis- distill it to a tweet. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but, but, okay. But one of the fascinating things about disgust is its place in intimacy, right? Kissing is, you know, let's, let's go back to saliva for a second. Kissing is swapping saliva, right? There, there is a bodily fluids going back and forth yet in the, because of the presence of intimacy, and love, it's a beautiful act of connection, as opposed to a disgusting act, right? And that's where, because what's happening when someone's getting, being, you know, kissing is like at the boundary, the physical boundary between what's me and what's you start is getting blurred as we enter one another. And that's a sense, and there's an us that's being created there because you aren't threatening to me. And because of the presence of intimacy, that actually increases both of us and we come closer together. Yeah. And, you know, the sexual act um, is further example of that where which is why like um, sexual violence is so heinous right because it's not just a it's not just physical pain being done to somebody but it's also but because it's it's a violation of the very self of the of the person and so it, it it's come it, you know it's triggering on, on multiple levels and part of my journey to this actually has been my my clinical work has been with individuals convicted of sexual violence um and trying to to provide therapy and rehabilitation to them um to bring them back, uh, kind of to help them reintegrate into society, uh, which again, a group of individuals that is probably the most stigmatized and disgusted in our society, or is somebody labeled sex offender. Um, and so, part of my journey towards this was real was kind of looking at the impact that that label had on them, and this idea of what what, what do we do because there is a real danger, right? They, they do pose a real threat, and they're human beings, um, and that I think is where this significance of love becomes so important because I think for me, it was realizing I could, I could love them. And in loving them, I could begin to see like, Oh, I see how they got there. And I can see the ways that like my own, my own vulnerabilities to 
horrific behavior and the way that we need each other in community to help us not end up over there. And that actually further distancing people away actually makes them more likely to offend. Again, I'm going off on a tangent here, but <laughs> to, to bring us back here for a second to, um, to what, what Billy was saying about love is that when there's that, when there is love and intimacy present, it actually lowers our disgust reaction. That fear that I need to have my, my guard up is gone, like begins to disappear when there's a relationship. So if you think about more gross examples, um, picking up your own dog's poop, right? I I walk my dog and it poops and I pick it up in a bag. I'm disgusted by other dogs poop. I don't want to go near that, but it's okay because it's my dog. Right. Um, Or changing my own children's diapers. Yes. Right. I'm okay with it, even though it's absolutely disgusting, but, but it's actually becomes a moment of often a beautiful connection with your kid because there's the relationship there. And so what Christianity we're arguing brings in that helps us transform these disgust reactions is love and is this desire to be in relationship and intimacy with others. Right. I mean, if God is loved and fundamentally God busts our disgust reaction, um, kind of very basic level. That that's really helpful. Paul, I do have to circle back about, about what you said about um, working with sexual predators to rehabilitate them because a lot of people in our community probably listening have been victims of sexual violence themselves. Yeah. Right. And, and I can hear them just screaming through their speakers. Like, honestly, probably something like, what the fuck? I don't, what did this guy just say? What does he do for a living? Right. That's probably the reaction. I'm assuming that a lot of them sure. have had because they, like yeah. you said earlier, right. That act is so violent. It's so intrusive uh, on so many levels. Um, and so yeah. I just want to be clear, right. What you're not advocating for is just letting people off back into society, uh, you know, scot free with no accountability or Absolutely. sense of justice for their actions. But I think what you are saying and tell me if I'm wrong is that, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to, for those people, right. Give almost bring back their humanity to understand how the hell do we stop this from happening going forward in other humans and catch these signs way earlier so sexual violence isn't happening towards for, towards more and more people as we go along in society. Is that kind of the idea behind it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm in the work of prevention. Prevention. Um, I work towards sexual violence prevention, and I do it by working with people at the highest risk of committing it to lower their risk of reoffending, yeah. to help them. And, and I think you do that by helping them remember their humanity. You help them, re- instead of objectifying themselves, which puts them in a place to objectify and abuse someone else, you help them remember their own humanity. And that does not mean you avoid, like, the. Re- <laughs> that means you help them face the reality of what they've done. You don't let them off the hook. You don't pretend it didn't happen. You don't, you know, let bygones be bygones in any way. In fact, you say, like, because you are a human, we can enter into and face the full depth and pain of what you have caused. And so that you don't have to spend your life running away from it, which puts you more, which puts you at a higher risk to do it again, because so much of our addictive and abusive behaviors are fueled out of our own avoidance of pain. And when we can't face our own pain, we end up redoing it. Um, and so what the work of prevention with individuals who have crossed that line is, is helping them return to that and face it. But that not to be something that says, now you're voted off the island and you can never be, you know, you need to be locked, locked away in an island, right? The, the fact is that like prison terms end and they are going to come back to society and they are humans. Right. And we need to learn how to not with these rose colored glasses, pretend that everything's changed. We want to face the reality of like, what are the protective factors that need to be in place? What are the boundaries and what are the ways that we protect ourselves? And for many people, that's, yeah, we, we need to be real wise about like the communities that we're going to have if we're going to bring people like that in. Right. But at the same time, they're still people. Right. 
And if we refuse to see them as people, we make them, we make the risk of their reoffense higher. Isn't that interesting how it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in so many ways, right? Like you think you're oh, yeah. doing the good by in theory, voting them off the island or just treating them like pieces of shit. But that only ends up reinforcing, you know, like that own internal whatever that's going on there. That 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 statistically only gives them a higher chance of like becoming that person or doing that thing again. It's just a very interesting thought because mm-hmm. it, it is counterintuitive. Because I mean, even to me, I'm just like, no, like, you know, whatever we got to do, they were, they're horrible. They're pieces of garbage. Like they need to know that. But if that, if that only, re- cause you're right, um, unless we're killing them, right. Unless we're giving them the capital punishment uh, for any kind of, of, of crime that is in the sex world, uh, you know, they are at some point going to come back to society uh, out of prison. Right. So I guess on a pragmatic mm-hmm. level, whatever we have to do to reduce the most probability of them ever doing that again, we need to do for the sake of our neighbor, Right. And to hopefully rehabilitate them into their own humanity so they can own what they did and how egregious it was. Right. And why they need to know that they can never do that ever again. Is that kind of the the thought there? Yeah. No. And I think so so, so the other side of it. Right. If we have this like extreme, no, sex offenders are going to, you know, be castrated and killed or whatever. Right. What that does is it also makes it less likely that anyone's going to report it. Right. When there's no when when the only response is like zero tolerance and zero everything um, is when our only response is, you know, is such violence to them, then then like the, the complexity, right, of of what happens is missed. And we just and people often then don't report or then power gets involved and we miss the ability to actually lower the rates of abuse. We actually because we want to pretend we have this strong reaction to it. We're going to be tough on it. We end up actually increasing it both in the people that have already perpetrated it and in the fact that then the system itself won't report everything because you're getting that, well, is it that bad? I mean, is it really, do I really want to ruin? And then all of the systemic issues of why predominantly, you know, cis white men continue to abuse because no other people, because of the way they misuse their power in order to, uh, to keep themselves safe in those systems. Okay. Uh, Again, I appreciate both you, Billy and Paul taking time and Billy, I appreciate you reaching out to me to make this conversation happen. I think it's so fascinating. I have just one or two more questions. Then we'll get ready to wrap up. I think that this is very, for a lot of people, we we talked about a lot of things in this, in the past 45 minutes, I think need time to digest and just process. But one question I had, and maybe Paul, this is more for you. Um, just like how I think, you know, hate breeds hate ultimately and violence begets violence. I think disgust breeds disgust, right? So, and what I kind of see, I'm on Twitter more than I need to be, but I'm in this line of work. So I'm on it a lot is, you know, let's just use the Matt Walsh example. It's such a clear example, right? Matt Walsh tweets something incredibly homophobic or transphobic. And then other people are like, oh, how could you, Matt? You're disgusting. Like you're a piece of shit. You're the disgusting human here, right? And then Matt's mind has never changed. And then everyone is just more, you know, their heels are more dug in to their position. Now, I want to be clear for the audience. I'm not advocating for a moderate both sides position. What Matt Walsh does is incredibly harmful and and completely, as as people know, TNE is completely affirming and completely takes sides in that community that what Matt does is harmful. People resisting Matt. Okay, are not harmful. People who are like Matt per- perpetuating that kind of violence are harmful in in this in this example. Okay, however, I noticed that you know the, those visceral reactions don't really tend to convince someone in the comments or like Matt that you know, hey, maybe I should rethink my position. So, so for you, Paul, how do I often say on the account? 
I'm concerned about, about about stopping cycles of chaos. Like I think that's a very biblical idea, the chaos monster of the deep, so to speak. Right? We can pull Genesis into this. But like, how do we participate in cycles that end chaos? How do we participate in cycles that end disgust of the other? Right? Um, that I think eventually lead to dehumanization, which inevitably will lead to violence. Mm-hmm. Slowly. Not the answer I wanted to hear, Paul. Come on. (laughs) No, but I I think it, you know, it starts with ourselves and being willing to look at our, and even like what, you know, I think what Billy talked about at the very beginning of look, being willing to see, oh, I am disgusted. If we can't acknowledge that we're actually reacting out of disgust on some level, it's going to keep being operative. And because we're, we're often ashamed of our own disgust. I shouldn't be, you know, I'm a good person. I don't get disgusted by people. I don't dehumanize. Yes, I do. Um, And until I'm able to tell that, to myself and then recognize it when it happens and then get to know what that feeling is like in my body so that I'm not just disconnected from my body thinking I'm, I'm just a rational being, but connected to, Oh, when I read that tweet, I have a physical visceral reaction. And part of my disgust reaction is I'm going to destroy it, right? We want to burn things that are gross. We want to absolutely eliminate. We want to make sure that they're nowhere ever near us. And on Twitter, that looks like, you know, usually maybe getting into a flame war and just yelling at people and just making sure the rest of the world knows that that's not me. Right. Instead of, I think what we want, what we, what we need to do is the, you know, is, is the impossible thing of holding the, the, the full reality of what they're saying in terms of like, yeah, that's not okay. And like, you just kind of had that whole thing of like, no, we, we, this breeds violence and this is, this is a terrible thing for you to be saying. This is doing horrific harm. We don't want to pretend that that's not real. We have to acknowledge that part right. of it. And we want to refuse to dehumanize ourselves, right. to dehumanize them. We need to continue to see them as human beings, not as objects of disgust, while not ignoring what they've done. Yeah, Matt Walsh is terrifying and 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 sinful and and, and just, you know, all the, the different adjectives that people use. But, I mean, not because Matt Walsh is not human, but because Matt Walsh is human. And yes. a human is doing that. Yeah. And a human is is dehumanizing so many of us and is spurring violence against so many people created in the image of God. And that is a tragedy. Um, I often um, find myself coming back to, I, you know, you know, you, the, you know the, there's a saying that happens almost every time that some group is caught or some person is caught doing something that bears a lot of social uh, negativity. And they'll say like, this isn't me or this is not us. And I always think, well, it is. It has to be, right. you did it, yeah. right? That it's exactly, yeah. but we want to separate. I mean, to go with what Paul was saying, like we're trying to separate from ourselves. We don't want this to be us. We're trying to vomit out the thing so that it can't, this thing that is being recognized as, as sinful, as evil, as bad, as wrong, isn't identified with, with who we are. And so rather than doing the hard work of saying, this is who we are and we're trying to get better. We don't like this about who we are and we're trying to improve. We say, this is not who we are and we don't get better. Uh, so too often, right? We see the same institutions having the same problems later. Well, I'm going to throw the audience a quick curveball, giving an example of this because on the, I was um, as of this recording, I was in Vermont this weekend gigging uh, with with my wife. I had a gig; it was a two night gig, and we're driving back. Um, and we have like five hours to kill on the drive. And my wife, her name's Sarah. She goes, "Oh, um, um, the the previous host of The Bachelor, whatever his name is, Chris something." Um, uh, he, he has a, a new podcast out because he essentially got fired for, for some comments he made, um, uh, during an interview, uh, that, that, that really just were inappropriate about essentially a, a bachelorette contestant was found, uh, in 2018 to go, uh, she went to a plantation, like Halloween party 
Okay, uh, it was a whole thing, and and uh, a black woman was interviewing Chris, the host of this Bachelorette series for 19 years, about it, and he pretty much just said, "I just want to hear what she has to say." You know, we can't make any judgments. He just kind of, he kind of completely, he completely dropped the ball. All right, it was a very, it was, yeah. it was a layup of like, this is wrong, this is bad. She hasn't said anything she should, and said it was like, well, we you know we don't know what the whole deal is yet. So I say all this audience, I, I promise I'm going somewhere, somewhere with this. I listened to his first episode. And so much of his podcast, it's been two years or a year and a half since this happened, was him saying how this wasn't him. Guys, I'm, I, I wasn't raised this way. I was taught what's right is right. This isn't me. And at the end of it, my wife and I were like, you know, that, there's like no accountability in this whole 45 minute long monologue. There was no personal accountability because it's, it, it is this idea of like, I couldn't possibly be capable of doing something that is this quote unquote bad, right? And I think when we, and I grew up in that world, and I think when we do that, I think we think that we're being moral and altruistic and like, I want to do good. I get that, but you're actually not taking accountability and being honest that all of us, myself included, you, Billy, you, Paul, we're capable of doing really harmful things. That was mm-hmm. us, yep. right? And until we take accountability for that, and are able to own that and say, yeah, um, that was me and I have to change. I think this whole idea of like, well, that wasn't really me. I think it's just like one of those scapegoat ways of saying I'm still a good person. So don't hold me accountable ultimately. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Long story. Well, I know, but yeah. I, I had to no, throw it in. No, there. no <laughs> it's, it's true. It's, it's good. Well, and, and I think, I mean, to harken back to what I was saying before, like, you know, Churches or other places that are going to be fully sex-free environments, things like that, actually, you know, are often rife with abuse because there's no way to acknowledge the the real the risk that is there or the 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 hope of that. I mean, one of the things we talk about, you know, I, I train individuals to be therapists, and we talk about like you're gonna like there will be times that you're gonna find yourself attracted to your patients. Mm. If you don't have supervision and consultation, other people to talk to about that, then you're actually in a more risky. If you pretend, well, that's not me. I don't find myself attracted to other people. I'm not supposed to be attracted right. to. Then you're then you're just in further denial, and it'll be you'll be further down the road before you are forced to to confront what you've actually done. Huh. Uh, so when, when I I mean another part of my work is actually I do trainings on like helping therapists maintain their ethical boundaries, mm. um, and because of this work I also do with 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 perpetrators because like very few people wake up one day and say you know what I think I'm going to do that no it's 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 because we refuse to see our own vulnerabilities. We're so disgusted at the very thought that that could be right. me that we end up so much more vulnerable when we're able to have a community and in and even a sense of self that says, yeah, I need to find this in myself so that it doesn't take over so mm-hmm. that I can get help so that we, this can be something that I can share. It's then when we're projectively disgusted by it, then it continues to, to root because the, the myth of disgust, right, is the myth of purity that you can have a perfectly pure person who's, you know, not going to have any bad thoughts, not going to have any sin, not going to have any like risk of, of, you know, abusive, aggressive behavior. Um, that person doesn't exist, but we all want to pretend we're that person. Right. Or we think it's our pastor. Like, I'm just wondering if I'm just, I'm just putting the connection here that you're making of like, this helps explain like this phenomena we see too often, right? Like Mark Driscoll, I think is, is the case book study because in his early years, he seemed someone who's like, I don't want to become this person. You know, I'm aware. But as he keeps going, you know, you get to a point where you're just kind of above it all. You can never do it. And then you become the very narcissistic abuser 
that you think you never would become, right? Or or how about the pastor yeah. we hear time and time again? Oh, yeah, I had an affair 15 years ago, but that really wasn't me. You know, like I, I just had a moment. Well, when you think you're above it and your congregation treats you like somehow you're above it, somehow Pastor Joe could never be attracted to the secretary. Pastor Joe could never, you know, have that thought or or, or, or have an anger issue because he's Pastor Joe. I'm, I'm making up that name, people. That's not an actual pastor, you know, but, I'm, you know, and then it happens. We go, oh, how could it happen? Well, like you said, Paul, if we can't acknowledge that our humanness is capable of immense good, but also of immense bad, if we're not aware of those blind spots, we're prone to 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 fall into them. Can I like, yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right. Like I, is that, what, actually what was, what sparked in me while you were talking about that was my experience as a Bible college graduate. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I majored in humanities and the Bible, um, but I had a lot of friends who were pastoral and youth pastoral majors, you know, from Bible college. And one of the things that really struck me in the four and five and 10 years after graduating, as they moved into um, pastorates, was how much they were required to perform this role of pure perfection, both in their theology and in, you know, in their, in their moral lives. And it meant that these were people that I, you know, I was great friends with, and we had a history of talking about anything and everything and trying to put everything on the table. And we could really have these open discussions. And I remember running, keep running up into when we tried to have these conversations you know, on Facebook, cause this was back in the day. Oh yeah. They couldn't speak that way anymore. They, it was no longer possible. And some of them would, would write me privately and say, Hey, this was a good conversation we're having, but we need to have the rest of it privately because publicly I can't express any doubt because, and I don't hold that against them. I, they, I'm sure that, you know, they have some, they bear some responsibility for perpetrating, perpetuating that. But like we've made these cultures of churches where we demand theological and this sort of kind of moral purity of our, of our pastors and our leaders that is impossible. Um, and so I don't think we should, I mean, I, so I very much agree with you. I don't think we should be surprised when we see these people falling, you know, again and again and again. Which if I can, if I can put in there, the the danger with saying that then, right. Is that then we just say, well, see, I'm human. So I'm just going to do it. And again, it becomes a way of like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, it goes back to the, you know, the boys will be boys, sexual abuse. Right. And we, and so we always need to temper it doing both sides with like, and yes, the desire is to root out abuse. Is to root out these these forms of violence on other people, and so we that that is definitely still the goal. But to pretend that we're already there, yeah, is the is the risk to pretend that like oh I did that and now I'm the hero and now I can now you can trust me and don't worry I will create this this perfectly safe place and that's where I mean to take us full circle I think where this our idea of you contamination becomes really important because it's that the it's this the idea is that it's this contaminant for good it's the thing that you don't want to believe about yourself the thing that said that's not me. But no, no, but not that, that actually when that disgusting thing is brought in, it has a possibility of actually being the thing that saves you, yeah. that redeems you. When you can acknowledge your own vulnerability to um, to sexual violence, you can actually not be controlled by sexual violence. And you can start recognizing the way that, I mean, for myself, like the way misogyny and you know sexism has just been such a part of the way I had even thought of myself, you know, the way whiteness was such a part of the way I held my body. But when I want to say, no, no, I'm not racist. Right there's no racism here, right? Then I'm actually perpetuating the very systemic racism that I'm pretending I don't have. But it's, it's when we can allow those contaminants that are not often welcome guests at first. (laughs) Like it's, it's disgusting. It's the thing you don't want to see about yourself that, Oh, I'm, I'm not, I don't just have a theological position about queerness. No, no. I was actually disgusted by queer people. And to be able to say that 
is really hard, but it opens the door for now. Now it, now it can mess with me. Now it can change me. Now there's hope that we don't just stay there. Um, and that's where that this idea of you contamination kind of comes from. It's that, that little thing. And often it's an idea or it's a relationship or it's the thing that like, I probably built my life around the fact that I'm not that. Yeah. yeah. The thing like, Oh, but I'm not that is often the thing that we need to metabolize so that it can change us because it's actually the determining factor. Well, it's interesting. And then we're going to wrap up, wrap up, up here in a minute. And again, Billy and uh, Paul, thank you for both being here and making time. It means the world. And Billy, I'll give you the final word after this. Um, because I can tell that you're chomping at the bit over there. So I, I, I see you, but we'll get to you. Um, you know, recently in my in my a, a neighboring town, there was a youth pastor um, who was arrested. Uh, he, essentially, he was um, he was um, like scamming boys online to essentially send exposing pictures of themselves by blackmailing them. Uh, he just got convicted. It's a whole thing. Um, he got convicted the whole nine. Um, but also, um, I've heard that this youth pastor who's married, uh, you know, uh, tried to date men at, at some point in his life. Right. And I don't want to make massive assumptions, assumptions here, yeah. but there also could be a link. We can say maybe of, of it's not the first time, right. We've heard pastors maybe be so outspoken against queerness only to find out, uh, you know, they're sleeping with, uh, with, with male prostitutes, like in, in the case of uh, Ted Haggard. Right. So it's almost like they refuse to admit that about themselves, so they push so hard against it when in reality, you know, there could be something inside of them that they think is disgusting that they refuse to accept. And it comes out in very harmful and, and you know, not healthy ways. Well, I think that's actually that, that's a perfect like, thank you, because I um, you're welcome. <laughs> so the, the thing I was chomping at the bit to say was I realized I don't think we ever defined or explained this word you contamination that we came up with. We was, I'm a nerd. And so we were riffing off of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings has this term. He used you uh, um, catastrophe, which is a catastrophe of a good kind. And so the you, that's the Greek good. Uh, uh-huh. We attached it to contamination. So it's contamination of a good kind. But like, this is the thing, right? Is that those are people, because I agree with you. Like those are people who experienced, let's just say queerness, but rather than seeing that it could be good, rather than being open to, you contamination by it, they had to make it just contamination. They had to hold it into disgust. And what you surround with disgust, you can only do in disgusting ways because that's the only way you can process it as making sense. You have to surround it with more disgust. So, you know, somebody who is divinely, belovedly, beautifully queer, who has to then, who convinces themselves that their queerness is gross. Well, the only way that makes sense in their life to they're not going to stop being queer, right? Like we've, there's, there's been too many, there, there are decades and decades and decades of research now. Yeah. They're, they're not going to stop being queer. They're going to still be queer, but they're going to surround it with a film of other moral failings and, and, and other, and, and these acts of actual evil, because that's how they've contextualized it. You're going to pull it from the same sort of swamp that you've put, you put this beautiful, this beautiful aspect of yourself in. And it's, yeah, it's deeply tragic. Wow. Well, I think that that's a great note to end on. Um, Paul and Billy, where can people find you? Are you on social media? I mean, are you, do you have public you know, accounts? Feel free to plug away. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'll go first. Um, so I, I tweet. I, I also tweet probably more than I should. I'm, uh, I'm at Billy is writing, B-I-L-L-I-E is writing. Um, and then I also have a, a blog uh, because I'm old. Um, I maintain it. Uh, oh, you have a Zanga, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a blog spot. It's a blog spot. I'm an elder millennial. I'm not. A, yeah. um, 
so you can you can find me there. It's Heaven and Earth Questions uh, Blogspot. And are, I'm pretty sure, aren't you part of our Facebook community? I am. I am I actually really enjoy it. I'm 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 a total nerd into uh, all things post evangelical or ex evangelical. Well, yeah. So I am, and I've I've really enjoyed it. So you can usually find me on uh, on the Facebook group too. Right, Paul. Yeah, I'm just a stuffy academic. Oh, okay, so you're one of those. I don't, right. I don't do a lot of social media <laughs> uh, presence, but I mean, I, I teach at the Seattle School, and so I give lectures through them and teach through them, and um, you know, I'm involved in various professional conferences, um, typically related to sexual abuse prevention, men- mental health counseling, things like that. But Billy and I um, continue to write pretty regularly for the other journal, which is um, a, a journal connected to uh, my school. But that's where we initially uh, published our ideas on eucontamination. Awesome. Well, again, my friends, thank you for making time. Paul and Billy, your siblings, it's amazing. I feel like we, we can unpack your journey as siblings in a whole other like three-hour-long podcast. Maybe we'll do it one day. So again, thanks for your time. I wish you both the best. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you All so right, much. Thank you so much for having us. A lot us. of fun.